on air, online, on digital, digital. and the ABC Listen app. The Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Coming up today has never been a better time to purchase a pineapple. Pineapples being a tropical fruit really, really didn't appreciate those weather conditions. So they went into a stress mode and and a high percentage of them have flowered naturally. So what that means is all those pineapples that were cold with wet feet have uh, shot up a fruit and that's now ready for harvest. And the horse riding school in Tasmania bringing joy to the disabled. Yeah, she's just amazing, I think, yeah. <laughs> she's nodding there to yeah, <laughs> the radio yeah, audience. Yeah, she sits up nice and proud on possum. <laughs> I just think it's a great opportunity for, you know, people with disabilities to come up here and with Virginia and, yeah, just... Have a go. Yeah, beautiful story coming up for you later in the program from a Northwest Tasmanian riding school. And have you checked the price of pineapples at the supermarket lately? Hundreds of thousands of the fruit being harvested at the moment and trucked around the country. Do love a ripe pineapple on a warm summer's day. G'day, Tony, with you on this Tuesday, where we also speak to a Tasmanian woman who spent a number of years in Papua New Guinea helping the local farmers with biosecurity threats. We'll hear from her very shortly. Also, a sunflower farm making some extra money out of allowing people onto the property to take photos. Good idea. We'll talk about that as well. Plus a check on the weather and your thoughts on any issue via the text line 0438 922 936. That number 0438 922 936. First up today, let's take a quick journey to Tasmania's east coast where an important field day for vignerons is underway. Our reporter Larissa Smith is there with a special guest. Thanks, Tony. I'm at a Ag Innovation Hub field day at Milton on the state's east coast, uh, not far from Swansea at Cranbrook. And uh, we're, we're learning some lots of interesting things, particularly around weather events around the east coast, but also resilience and preparing for the next drought that is invariably around the corner. And I have a special guest with me who was instrumental in setting up this Ag Innovation Hub. Uh, Cathy Evans, welcome to the Country Hour. Thank you, Larissa. Uh, lovely to be able to uh, speak with everyone today. Uh, we're very excited because um, the drought, well, it started as a drought hub and that started last year and we were awarded funding from the Future Drought Fund and it, it's allowed us to put together a program of activity to um, help farmers and those who support them to prepare for drought uh, or dry conditions that, that uh, they're going to experience. And today we've just had a, a talk on climate futures um, just, just recently and, uh, and really it's just giving um, people a chance. The focus today is viticulture. You know, we're here on the East Coast um, which um, has, has been through various droughts. And so the whole discussion today is about managing water, thinking about irrigation, uh, and, and especially producing those uh, premium grapes um, for, for Tasmania and thinking about the industry, how that's expanding. We've also got other um, producers here today. Um, people are not just growing grapes. Um, there's, there's a lot of uh, mixed farming here as well. So the, the, the topic's quite broad, uh, but it's just a great chance to get everyone together, share stories, what are we doing now, uh, what's happened in the past, what are we doing now, and then looking to the future, with thinking about um, what, how do we prepare for those future conditions. 
And it is a funny topic to think about when we've just come off the back of a horrendously wet spring and winter. Mm, Look, it's been a really challenging growing season and I think that's just part of it though um, is, is we're so busy working on the business right now but it's really good to be able to stop and think about um, what might be coming. We know those drier conditions are coming coming again. Some of the producers here today, we've had a, a grower panel here and they've been able to talk about what happened last time. Um, when are those really important times during the growing season? Coming up to flowering and fruit set is a really critical time for grape production. And just thinking about when is it really important to have the... the the water and the nutrition for the vines just right. Um, coming up in the next section, uh, we're going to be having some ag tech companies. Uh, they've come down from the mainland, um, talking about some new technologies and options there, more towards that data-driven agriculture. And I think I think the big learning from d- today is um, farmers, especially those who've been growing grapes for many years they've got a tremendous amount of experience about um, you know they're out there every day every week they might be doing the spraying so they're very in tune with with what those vines need but they also saying that well it's good to have the data it's good to have the technology as well because that really helps back up my gives me confidence in my decision making seeing more uptake of this technology around the place because I know some farmers feel like oh well if I have all of this data I need to be able to break it down make it applicable to my vineyard do I have time for this? I think a lot of it is really understanding how people are making decisions now and it's really about fitting that tech into existing operations. Um, you know, a cost comes to this. So if you're going to invest in it, and we've already had discussions this morning simply about, well, um, the, maybe the way I'll get through the next drought is, you know, building another dam. Um, but I think the, the discussion also needs to broaden out to how do we use that water wisely as well. You know, we're getting expansion. You can see all the vines that are being planted. There, there are going to be increasing pressures on that water resource. So I think what we're trying to do in the hub is really um, do a lot of um, interviews and understanding of uh, what do people do now and why, and then where is the opportunity, because um, it's not just a matter of, you know, build a pretty package and say, here it is. I mean, that's just not how things get adopted. It really has to address a pain point in people's current operations, and there really has to be some, uh, not only a pain, but, you know, what is that gain? And a lot of what we're doing is understanding that. We're also working hard to connect different groups. Um, the East Coast Producers Group is here today and the, the hub also is um, working directly with them in a project. So we're trying to... Um, the hub is very much about connecting the different groups so that they can learn from each other who's doing what and just get a, a lot more knowledge exchange um, because, you know, we don't know what we don't know. Uh, if, we, if we can build those connections, that's a really a big part of what the Hub does. What else is in the pipeline this year? Uh, many, many other projects. Um, and, uh, uh, yeah, I think there, there's a lot of, a lot of different groups. Um, but they involve, every, every one of those projects involves farmers. We're also bringing in a lot of the uh, service providers to the industry as well. Um, there's some particular learning needs for them as well. I think we're looking more at 
um, some of the spatial technologies, you know, using maps and thinking about that future agronomist as well. What does that digital agronomist look like? Um, what skills do people have now and what, what do they need to build and how can we, how can we use that data-driven information to, to support? Um, and it's not just having the tech, but you've also got to have people with the skills to be able to interpret what that means. If you've got gear, you've got to have service providers. If something breaks down, you know, and I think it's like the other side of having sensors in the in the environment too is just one more thing to go wrong. So you've got to, you've got to think about you've got to think about the whole package as well. Um, what what it, what is needed to support all this um, these ways forward? We're here talking about viticulture and drought resilience, but are there other fields or? other um, types of industries that, uh, that you'd like to work with uh, throughout this season? Yes, uh, look, the hub is for all farming sectors in Tasmania and um, so I think, you know, again, that's why we've got the East, East Coast producers here today. Um, the, the, obviously all the tree and vine crops we've got here and I, and I think we're very much aligning to um, the Tas, you know, Tasmanian... Um, the, the state is, is got that vision for 2050 and, and very much looking to some of those industries that are growing and expanding in the state while also considering some of the smaller um, yeah, I mean you, you, you know you can cl- classify different businesses into you know boutique, niche and large and I think the hub really can help bring some of those things together and, and different types of farming styles need, have got different needs around that Cathy Evans from the Ag Innovation Hub, one of the organisers of the Milton Vineyard Field Day at Cranbrook, talking there to our reporter Larissa Smith. We'll have plenty of stories in the next few days coming up from that particular field day, which is continuing today around about three o'clock this afternoon. It finishes. Well, the former Holden factory in Adelaide's northern suburb of Elizabeth is now home to an exotic mushroom farm and food manufacturing facility. From Holdens to Mushrooms. The $110 million project will eventually produce 20,000 tonnes of exotic mushrooms and mushroom products each year and employ some 350 staff when fully completed, making it the largest exotic mushroom facility in the country. Production of oyster mushrooms will start around late February and eventually other varieties such as shiitake and anoki. CEO of the Epicurean Food Group, Kenneth King, explains to Nikolai Bailarts and Stacey Lee why he believes the farm will be a game changer for Australia. We started to build a little mushroom farm three years ago and we got pushed and pulled by the customers to go bigger. I've, I've grown up in the industry, so we thought we'd go and chase the market, so we did. We came to Elizabeth in November, or late October, early November, and started to build a substantial size oyster mushroom farm and it's just growing and growing and now today we we're going to open stage one which is the 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 basis of the farm uh, as well as the value-add kitchen but then we we continue on the seven stages of development here is there really that much demand for mushrooms mushrooms are across the globe uh being recognized as one of the the healthiest sources of of food and nutrition um, and we've, we've known it for years. I've been in the mushroom industry for years. We've known it for years and trying to sell that message is always hard. Uh, but across the, the, particularly across America and Europe, the, the, the noise about fungi of all sorts and the, the benefit for you as a, as a human is phenomenal. 
And the, the, in Australia, we're just waking up to it and getting our head around it. But supply is an issue here, hence why I've built a very big farm. So how big are we talking? What kind of output will you have? How many mushrooms are coming out of it eventually? Uh, this state one here in about three weeks' time. So on the 26th of February, we, we will hit full production of stage one. That will give us about 20 tonnes of oyster mushrooms a week. Wow. Mm-hmm. And where do they go? Everywhere. Coles, <laughs> Drake's, uh, all the independents, Metcash, Edwin Food Service, you name it, they go lots of places. And just we, in SA or nationally or internationally? No, uh, the fresh mushroom goes um, across the country uh, via uh, Costa Group, uh, which are our distribution partners. And so they sell all my product for me fresh. But the value-add section where we make the mushroom burgers, the mushroom snags, the balls and the crumble, that sort of stuff, we distribute that ourselves and that goes nationally to various outlets. What's mushroom crumble, Ken? Basically, it was a burger that went wrong. And, <laughs> and so we stuck it back in the mincer and it actually held up really well. So uh, you can you use the crumble in a taco, you put it on a pizza. It looks a bit like uh, Italian sausage on a pizza or... or um, beef uh, in a taco, uh, except it's a mushroom. It's made from mushrooms. That's the voice of Ken King, the CEO of Epicurean Food Group, opening the mushroom factory in Elizabeth at the old Holden plant today. How much of that plant are you taking up, Ken? I've got about uh, 15% of the plant. Okay. Um, so what, what was the old paint shop, uh, which is a 19,000 square metre building, uh, that's that's ours. Uh, that's ne- that's the next stage. I've got a four thousand square meter building that was like a little warehouse. Uh, that's that's where I've built this first piece. There's a tall vertical stacker. Um, that's another piece, and then I've got the what was the car park where they put the finished cars. Hmm. Uh, that's reserved for me to future proof the business. And are you getting some state government money towards this? Uh, I haven't had any to date. I haven't asked for any though. Uh, but the state government's been helping us in other ways, and. You know, it's, there's more ways that you get help rather than just cash. Um, cash is nice, don't get me wrong, but um, yeah, it's it's a conversation that's that's ongoing. Uh, and there, I haven't had a no. We just need to clarify exactly what we'd like the money for. That's all. So, what other ways is the is the government helping you out if not money yet? Uh, um, uh, pushing us in the right direction. There's, there's, it takes a village to do something this big. Uh, this is a truly vertically integrated business, and uh, and so uh, there's lots of different disciplines here, and, and so you know, EPA issues, power issues, um, uh, gas issues, roads, so forth and so on. Those those things there, to be able to have that dialogue with the government, where you can go to the people and say, I've got this problem, um, is there a way around it? Is there a way to fix it? Is there some help? Um, that's invaluable, I think. And speaking of EPA issues, is there going to be an odour coming from your farm and will people of the northern suburbs start to smell it at the end of the month when production ramps up? I'm, I'm right across the issues of the, the smell issues. I, I grew up in Sydney. I know exactly what those problems were. Um, oyster mushrooms don't use uh, animal manure as a form of food. So when we make substrate for, for oyster mushrooms, we make it from straw only and uh, we chop the straw we cook the straw in water and then we, we uh, inoculate it with spawn. There is no smell. You can stand right beside my, my substrate because uh, it's not compost, it's substrate, and there is absolutely zero smell. Is that just for the oyster mushrooms? What about the others when you start to produce the other ones? 
I'm not going to produce button mushrooms, so there's no there's no chance of any time you'll have a smell. All of the all of the other varieties, they all they either grow on straw or they grow on sawdust. That's CEO of the Epicurean Food Group, Kenneth King, speaking to Nikolai Bailatz and Stacey Lee about the former Holden factory now becoming a mushroom factory, a Holden shiitake. It's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Well, people from the Pacific Islands have been a huge asset to the Tasmanian agricultural workforce in recent years. At the same time, nations like Papua New Guinea, Tonga and Samoa have also been at the receiving end of international support to help their agricultural industries thrive as well. Dai Ba, now based in the Tamar Valley, looks back at her time in PNG and the importance of maintaining biosecurity. My time with agriculture in the Pacific um, has only been in the last half dozen years. I was working on a program called Pacific Horticultural and Agricultural Market Access, Pharma, and then later on Pharma Plus. Those programs were funded by both the Australian government and the New Zealand government through the Departments of Foreign Affairs and Trade and Ministry for New Zealand of Foreign Affairs and Trade. And they were to help Pacific Island um, agricultural industries export into Australia, New Zealand and the greater world. So as part of that, we had um, a whole range of biosecurity experts on staff helping us to um, meet the requirements for market access into Australia and New Zealand, which are the toughest in the world. And um, so they were always very conscious of threats um, that could get through. And so as soon as they heard of something, they were all, all these scientists, we've got to do something, we've got to do something. And I was uh, the team leader, not a scientist, not an agriculturist, but I would give them the resources they need to combat it. So the big ones we did while I was with Pharma were um, African swine fever in Papua New Guinea. Um, It entered in from Asia and probably Timor. And uh, we supported a program to eradicate it from PNG, or at least manage it, probably not eradicate it, um, and really contributed to communication in multiple languages in PNG. And that can't be easy because the community is so spread out, uh, the communication isn't very reliable. How do you galvanise a community like that and get the message out to the people that need to know? Um, Very much um, getting Papua New Guineans to do it. So we were very fortunate. We had an amazing Papua New Guinean veterinarian led the program and getting a whole bunch of uh, Papua New Guinean risk um, communications people that could talk in multiple languages. The department in PNG led it. Um, they, they were excellent. So we gave them, through the Australian government and the High Commission and the New Zealand government and High Commission in Port Moresby, we gave them the resources to manage it themselves, basically. The man that was leading it for the program I worked on was a Papua New Guinean biosecurity expert that's worked internationally. And uh, he was just excellent. How critical is maintaining this this pig population, which is is really worshipped in that country, isn't it? Pork um, pigs are very very important, especially in the highland economies, and um, they're very valuable. They're much more valuable than similar size 
pig in Australia would be. All the villages that were affected got together and really did a big clean-up of their areas, kept pigs fenced, uh, excellent at helping the biosecurity people come in and test. Um, it was really magnificent to watch that when people really want to make a difference, they can make a difference. Yeah, and collaborations with Australians too. That I understand the research facet of that is pretty critical as well. Very much so. We were working with the Australian Department of Agriculture, Water and Environment, DARA. The expertise that was required got added. The, the um, FAO was also very involved. So it was all the organisations working together. But the main thing, I think, it was being led by Papua New Guineans. It wasn't expatriates coming in and saying what to do. It was expatriates coming in and saying, tell us where you need the support and we'll support you. So the program I did um, actually hired an agricultural economist. As soon as we heard that there was an outbreak of African swine fever, we hired a very um, highly respected in the Pacific um, agricultural economist who did some figures on just what it could cost the Papua New Guinean economy, and that was entabled in the um, Papua New Guinean parliament. So it actually really got everybody's attention very, very quickly. You're aware that Papua New Guinea is only about five kilometres from Australian borders through the islands and the Torres Strait. Australia has over 20 million feral pigs, I believe. So it would be very easy if Australia didn't support to eradicate, well, to manage, I don't think you ever totally eradicate. But if you manage the disease in Papua New Guinea, you can help prevent it getting into the Australian marketplace. What did you most enjoy about your time in the Pacific? I just fell in love with the Pacific. Um, the people, I mean, it's beautifully geographically, but the people are just amazing. Their sense of community and family and looking after each other, their wisdom. My husband and I, over 20 years, um, lived in Solomon Islands, um, only for a few months, but Samoa for a couple of years, Fiji for about seven years over two times, and Papua New Guinea for five years. I loved it all, but I must admit, Papua New Guinea really won my heart. It's a, um, a mountain of gold floating on a sea of oil, but really it's the people that make Bougainville. It's just wonderful. That's Di Barr from Tasmanian Women in Agriculture. Talking now to Larissa Smith about her time as a project manager of various agricultural programs in the Pacific and especially in Papua New Guinea. Some great memories. Well, to the dairy industry now, and with the dairy experiencing strong seasonal conditions and high prices, there are flow-on effects to multiple industries, including the genetics industry. Reporter Sarah Lawrence spoke to three separate genetics providers who say they're all experiencing record sales. CMEX General Manager Tyson Shea says the sector is reaping the benefits of a booming dairy industry. So 2022 was a record year for, for CMEX in Australia, mostly driven by uh, the increase in sex semen usage. And I think that the driver of that at farm level was the live export price of black and white heifer calves. So saw the trend that of a lot more sex semen being used, um, a decrease in conventional semen and, and then an increase in beef semen. Um, probably the increase in beef semen was for the demand of the beef on dairy calf. Uh, so overall, uh, a very successful year yeah, for us. And how's the year ahead looking? Really good. So um, supply looks strong. Um, the industry's in a really good spot with milk price, uh, live export price, beef price. So I think, yeah, if we can back it up again this year, we'll have a, another successful year. It's a similar story for Darren Fletcher from Total Livestock Genetics, who's seeing a booming industry. 
Absolutely fantastic. Record sales over the last 12 months. Sex semen usage is increasing by about 20%. Farmers are buoyant about using sex semen, so it's, uh, it's certainly showing up in the figures. And why do you think the demand is there? Have things changed over the past few years? Uh, obviously, milk prices have played a pretty important factor in it with, with high milk prices. Uh, farmers could use with some lower input prices, but the, it's made them buoyant that the industry's um, stronger and, and going to be there for the future. So that sounds quite promising. I, even with uh, weather conditions, do you think it will hold up? Yeah, certainly. There's a lot more you know, farms in northern Victoria and the likes of that that are going to barns and, and, and whatnot. So they're adapting to changing climates and, and, and whatnot. So, yeah, certainly, certainly see a future. While Jared Brislin from Genetics Australia says farmers have just come off a tremendous end to 2022 and they're looking to the future. I, I think continuing to set up for the next generation, you know, is, is where they're, uh, they're wanting to invest. You know, we have technologies around, uh, you know, the genomics and genotyping today and people can sort of see a future in, in that, you know, and, and that's, um, yeah, it's, it's very much, you know, that... Uh, long-term investment i guess that you know where they where they see the advantages in uh in genetic material do you see any bumps ahead in the road or any challenges oh i think uh there's, there's always sort of um you know challenges along the way i probably tend to think that um you know what what the next next 12 months sort of brings you know we've you know just as i said come off uh off some nice conditions and you know really does depend on what uh you know where the rainfalls uh you know in the next 12 months and the likes and uh yeah, so I think, you know, it's, uh, you know, there's been some nice harvests in terms of fodder and the likes, but yeah, it's, uh, you know, we're just going to have to sort of wait and wait and sort of see what sort of plays out. I mean, it can be, uh, it can be one thing this month and a little bit different in six weeks' time, you know, so it's, uh, yeah, changes pretty quick. On that note, when you're having a good year, what are you doing now to mitigate any potential ups and downs? Oh yeah, I think you know mitigation around that, particularly in our in the part of business that we're in, in terms of genetics, it's just really important for us to continue to identify, you know, the best genetics that we can take forward for uh, for Australian dairy farmers. You know, uh, you know, breeding Australia, better Australian cows is, uh, and herds is what we're all about, and uh, you know, we're in the process right at the moment of just sort of signing off some some new acquisitions through our beef and our dairy programs, and you know, which will take us forward in the next uh, you know the next eighteen months with some strength around breeding values and the like. That was Genetics Australia's Gerard Breslin ending that report from Sarah Lawrence on the record amount of genetics being used in the dairy industry. Still to come on the country, the big push to buy pineapples, plenty of pineapples around. And also a lovely story about horses giving confidence to disabled riders, plus a check on the weather. First up, the news headlines with Ellie Ward. Thanks, Tony. Today is the last day state-run COVID-19 testing clinics in Tasmania will operate. Around 850,000 PCR tests have been conducted in Tasmania since the start of the pandemic, about half of them since the border reopened in 2021. Of those tests, 15% have come back positive. The Victorian government says the failure of care that led to the death in custody of Aboriginal woman Veronica Nelson will drive substantial reform in the state's justice system. A coroner yesterday urged an overhaul of Victoria's bail system among 39 recommendations resulting from an inquest. Ms Nelson's treatment by prison staff was labelled by the coroner as cruel and degrading and that her medical care was described as inadequate. Hawthorne will play AFL fixtures in Launceston for the next three seasons 
as part of a $13.5 million contract extension with the Tasmanian government, but the deal is contingent on Tasmania being granted an AFL and AFLW licence. And Cindy Williams, who played Shirley on the popular sitcom Laverne and Shirley, has died at the age of 75. Laverne and Shirley ran from 1976 to 1983 and was among the most popular shows on US television. More news at one. Time now to check the latest on the weather and joining us from the Bureau, Luke Johnston. G'day. Hey, Tony. How are you going? Yeah, pretty good. No rainfall about? No, been pretty quiet. No rainfall uh, up to 9am. Uh, well, there was about one millimetre report at Hearts Mountains in the far south, but nothing nothing significant in the gauges anywhere else up to 9am or since. Looking at a, a nice partly cloudy t- day today, fairly warm Lots of uh, sunshine this afternoon developing, although it is remaining cloudy right by the west coast. There's some showers uh, expected to develop late evening about the west coast, but other than that, a, a nice, beautiful, fine day, Tony. Yeah, it looks pretty good out there. Um, and we had Larissa from the east coast saying it uh, looks looks okay too out at Swansea. Oh, it'll be great in Swansea. Yeah. Uh, should we stop talking about the weather? Because I think it, it takes a bit of a turn tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> well, go on. Well, Let me know. All right. Well, cold front number one comes through tomorrow morning, bringing showers essentially uh, statewide. Looks uh, like in the, the west and south in the morning and then up to the northeast during the afternoon and evening period. does look like Launceston might only get a light shower or two around the middle of the day, but not expecting uh, significant falls and uh, looks like a pretty sheltered conditions for the north coast. For uh, Thursday, we get cold front number two coming across this one a bit later in the day. Uh, looks wetter and windier in the order of sort of 10 to 20 millimetres across the north and west with less than 5 millimetres elsewhere in the state. The cold front on Thursday uh, is expected to arrive late afternoon the west coast and cross the state during the evening. Cold air comes over the state on Tasmania. You've probably heard whispers of an Antarctic blast. I think it's been a bit overhyped, to be honest, but uh, we could potentially have some snow to around 1,100 metres about western and central Tasmania on Friday morning and then some afternoon storms brewing uh, inland on, on Friday afternoon. So, yeah, a bit of a bit of, bit of downhill after today, but it bounces back pretty quickly. could be pretty windy on Saturday when all this weather clears away, but from Sunday onwards it looks like we're back to ridge-dominated, uh, mostly stable uh, weather for next week. Wouldn't be anyone at the ABC overhyping it, would it? No, I don't know. I'm now worried at something I've said. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, no, it, uh, it is a bit of a cold snap, and I reckon some of the stories might be related to the, the cold air making its way over the southeast of the mainland. Uh, in Adelaide, for example, on, uh, on Friday, it's significantly cold for them. It's just not significantly cold for Tasmania. See, your mother would have told you not to use four-letter words on the radio, and you said snow, so that was, that was yeah. why. Yeah, probably. Yeah. I mean, it, it, you know, we still very well may see some snow flurries on the central plateau and, and the higher peaks of the western uh, districts on, on Friday morning, but nothing nothing too crazy. And to be fair, the origin of the air is coming from the deep south, so Antarctic, you know. Yep. It's just, it's just not world-ending. Okay. Now, uh, any warnings at this stage? All right, well... Uh, yeah, they're not world-ending either. No warnings today. Uh, tomorrow we've got a, a bit more strong uh, winds around with that cold front coming during the morning, but resulting in a strong wind warning for the far northwest coast, the upper east coast, the lower east coast and southeast coast. 
So out on the coastal waters today, looking at uh, northwest to southwesterly winds, 10 to 20 knots in the west, uh, lighter and more variable about the east, gradually starting to tend north to northeasterly, 10 to 20 knots this afternoon down the east coast. Tomorrow, winds northwesterly, 10 to 20 knots, tending southwesterly during the day and then eventually more subtly up the east coast, reaching 25 to 30 knots at times about the west, south and east. Swell today and tomorrow is a west to southwesterly, three to three and a half metres tending southerly one metre up the east coast and uh, westerly below one metre through Bass Strait. There's also a northeasterly swell below one metre uh, affecting northern and eastern coastal waters today. And just before you go, Luke, uh, Tipperad, one of our loyal listeners says, Hi, Tony, leave the funny stuff alone, don't work. <laughs> Do you get messages like that? <laughs> was that me or for you? No, I don't, I don't have a direct feedback line. No, I think uh, it was for me. Oh, right. Oh, I, I appreciate your efforts, Tony. Yeah, well, he says I'm not funny, so, okay. Oh. All right, Tipperad, I'll be very serious from now on. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll be, um, yep, uh, have, a, have a great uh, rest of the week, Tony, and I'll talk to you seriously next week. Thank you, Luke Johnston. See you later. Luke Johnston from the Bureau with all the latest information for you on the country. Uh, coming up, we'll take you to the northwest of the state. Lovely story about uh, disabled horse riders. Breakfast is better. Yeah, pulling in a good morning. With Rick Goddard. It's like a 27-tiered system navigating Australia's visa processes. Chris Ferdinand. For us to be a part of Australia is a great achievement. This is a great country. It's been a long nine years for me and my family. At the time of swearing in, I was actually choking with a lot of emotion. Being an Australian is such a great achievement. Rick Goddard. Monday to Thursday from 5.30am on ABC Radio Hobart. Coast to Coast, this is the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Still to come, we'll talk plenty of pineapples around the supermarket shelves and also one enterprising farmer making a little bit of money on the side out of uh, sunflowers and inviting people onto the farm to allow them to take photos, but uh, charging them for the privilege. We'll tell you that story shortly. Well, it's pretty well known that humans and horses can develop quite a special connection. It's something that Virginia Turner has seen time and time again in her 20 years as a riding instructor. It's especially true for her students with disabilities who come to her beautiful property at the back of Wynyard for lessons. Under it. Can you flick it back? Yep. This is Gemma. She's in her 30s, works a job at a factory and enjoys taking weekly horse riding lessons at a new school that's popped up in her local area. I ride horses. Gemma also has Down syndrome and about 18 months ago had barely even touched a horse. And then just give that to Jackie the whole time. hit people. Mum, Jackie, you're Gemma's carer. Yes. How long have you been caring or hanging out with Gemma? It'll be about eight years, I reckon. Yeah. And how long have you been coming here to Williams Riding School? Um, I think Gemma's been here for about a year and a half. Did Gemma know how to ride when she started here? No. No, I don't even think she'd even been on a horse. So what have you seen over the past year and a half in terms of... Just her confidence grow is amazing, yeah. And, like, she used to be quite shaky and, you know, getting up on possum and, you know, she's just really confident and, yeah, not shaky, are you, Gem? No. Yeah, she is very confident and, like, you know, when we go out and have a coffee afterwards, you know, she's quite capable of ordering her own coffee and knowing what she wants, so, yeah. How did you feel when you um, watched her do her first jump? 
Oh, oh yeah, she's just amazing, I think, yeah. <laughs> she's nodding there to yeah, <laughs> the yeah, radio audience. Yeah, she sits up nice and proud on Possum. <laughs> I just think it's a great opportunity for, you know, people with disabilities to come up here and with Virginia and, yeah, just have a go. Yeah, it's a great, great place. Put it on. Good girl. Now give it the soft brush and give him a, a bit of a brush where the saddle was. Virginia Turner, we're at Wingard and we run a riding school. Yes, my name's Dennis, my husband is Virginia. Virginia and Dennis Turner ran a riding school down in the south of Tasmania for 20 years. But when the water in their dam dried up, it was time to move. Um, we moved up here two years ago from Orielton because this is where it was raining and it wasn't down there and we set up the riding school here. How long did you have that for? 20 just, years. Yeah, yeah, established 1989, wasn't it? That's when we first started. First started, yes, yeah. yes. Yeah, right. Yeah. And why did you start that? Oh, it was something I always, I always had ridden and I'd competed um, and I wanted to offer people my experience that I had that I could sort of offer them, yeah. So you're sort of the main, the teacher here. I'm Virginia, the instructor. The instructor yeah. and also the artist on the buildings out yes. there. <laughs> They're beautiful, by yeah, the way. Yeah, very clever. Thank very you. Clever. Yeah. They're really lovely. Now, uh, today we had someone here called Gemma who has Down syndrome, and I understand you have a fair few people that come through who have disabilities. Yes. Is that something, is that a speciality of yours here? Not really. Um, I think it's more word of mouth that's got round because Williams Run is really the only place that caters with horses that people can come to. You know, there's lots of instructors up the northwest, but normally you've got to take your, if you've got to, you've got to own a horse first. This is a place where you can come. You don't have to own a horse, and we provide the equipment. You know, hat, vest, boots, and all the gear for the horses. And we've got an array of sizes. So, well, you've had many years of experience. Then, have you noticed um, some sort of benefit of teaching people with disabilities to ride and connect with horses? Oh, absolutely. Um, Gem is a prime example because um, when she first came, as uh, Jackie said, she used to really shake and she just even getting on the horse was a big thing. I never thought we'd be trotting, but she's really quite balanced and quite, as you saw, um, she may not rise trot, but she's quite comfortable doing that sit trot. I think that's also a measure of uh, the development in the confidence and Mari, her mother, noticed a change within three weeks as to Jenna's, Gemma's level of confidence, her response to questioning or anything. She settled down a lot, uh, matured, all that sort of thing because of her relationship with the horse. Wow. Yeah. I, I'm firm on that, and uh, we've seen that uh, because of Virginia's teaching style. We've said that in other students, especially when they started off as little fellows and she's still got some of those girls now they're in their 30s. Dennis, um, sounds like Virginia's pretty well got the school covered. What do you actually do around here? Well, <laughs> we'll see all these fences around here, Meg. I did them. <laughs> someone has to do yeah, something. Yeah, someone has to do it. Yeah, I often say my job is to sort of mend things that break and find things that get lost and um, pick things up that fall over and uh, generally keep away <laughs> unless requested. But no, really, there's a, there's a considerable amount of maintenance required and uh, 
you know, like with any farm, but horses particularly, I think, because they, they can be a bit pushy. The grass is always green on the other side of the fence. We have two naughty ponies, and they keep him fairly busy because <laughs> they spend a lot of time trying to work out how they can get through the fence and yeah. ruin it. From a business perspective, was it moving a business, Can you've got to sort of start again almost from scratch and, and build it back up. Was it a bit of a step back to come up here? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, because you've got to get that word. I mean, we were established down there, and mm. even though there's more riding schools down there, the bigger population, coming up, it was... And it's only... So we've only been going about 18 months. Um, Gemma was one of the first students. Yeah, we sort of had to... We had to start at the bottom again. It's just coming to its full now. It's like, we run um, holiday camps, and during the year I was getting one and two people, and this time we've had... Um, both camps are full. Well, as many as I can take with the horses I've got. So, I mean, it's not huge, but six or eight. And that's, that, was fan- that was fantastic. Great. You know, I had lots more inquiries this year. It must be a relief then, just financially, to be getting students back out here and, and building up the, the name of the business a bit again. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's just slowly building. I'm getting more during the week now. I'm getting more adults. There's a lot of adults who probably wanted to ride as a kid and never got the opportunity um, and they get to an adult age and they think oh, it's on my bucket list I want to ride a horse. Mm. So you take anyone even if they've never seen a horse before? Absolutely yeah that, that's that's probably our target area and urban kids um, who aren't ever going to own their own horse more so than people with their own horses. It's, it's almost like a mission you've got there to get these urban kids out on horses um, why do that? What's the benefit? The problem I see with, um, uh, this is going to sound terrible, with kids today is the fact that what are they glued to most of the time and where are they? They're inside, they're not outside, they're not doing physical things. And this is all those, this is all the things that they don't do or don't get a chance to, to do. And I think that's really important because kids are missing out on that whole, you used to go out and do things, but they don't. It's getting less and less. You've even got to look at um, memberships of sports clubs and things like that. They're getting less and less. So this is a way to get them out. And Virginia saw the benefit as a young one being able to get out and about with friends mm. and ride a horse, you know, and now she's turned it into a, not only a passionate interest but uh, as a means of income to assist other people in making those same decisions. And I think that's very important because it builds their character. I mean, I've been witness to a lot of Virginia's early students who have now grown up and um, into, you know, lovely young people. Um, and uh, they'll tell you a lot of their development was because of the relationship they had with Virginia, learning responsibility, accountability for their actions. Um, and, and that's what has happened by being in touch with horses. Yeah, Dennis and Virginia Turner ending that chat there with Meg Powell about this special riding school at the back of Wynyard in Tasmania's northwest. You also heard from student Gemma Campbell and her carer, Jackie. Uh, Margaret sums it up pretty well from Lindisfarne. G'day, Margaret. Uh, beautiful story about the riding school for disabled on the northwest coast. Well done, guys. Yeah, well done to Meg. Terrific story. I've got a couple of supporters here. Um, when uh, Tipperet said, leave the funny stuff alone, uh, Will says, uh, Tony, life is too important to be taken seriously. We do appreciate your efforts. Cheers, Will. Thank you, Will. And uh, Vic in Alveston. G'day, Vic. Please don't give up on the jokes. We need to smile and laugh. Tony, keep up the great work. Oh, thank you, Vic. I'll, um, I'll maybe have a joke for you by the end of 
the show. What have I got? 12 minutes. I'll think about it anyway. Now, you're being urged to head to the supermarket and buy up pineapples. Tons of the fruit is going to be left to rot in paddocks as farmers can't pick them fast enough before they ripen. A mass natural flowering event caused every growing region in Australia to come online at once rather than staggering the fruiting. Central Queensland grower Ben Clifton explains to Megan Hughes the unseasonal conditions that caused this to happen. Well, this season's like no other we've ever experienced, and we seem to be saying that just about every year now. We had a really, really cool, wet July period here in Yapoon. We we're well known for our beautiful winters, but we had a week where five days didn't get over 12 degrees and it drizzled rain, and uh, pineapples being a tropical fruit really, really didn't appreciate those weather conditions. So they went into a stress mode and and a high percentage of them have flowered naturally. So what that means is all those pineapples that were cold with wet feet have uh, shot up a fruit, and that's now ready for harvest. Now, that didn't only happen in Yapoon. It happened to the north of us. It happened to the south of us. You know, the guys on the Sunshine Coast, they'll be ramping up in the next week or two to, to reach their harvest peak. I guess last week was probably our harvest peak, and we... Um, we're, we're tapering out now. It's not that we haven't got more fruit to pick. It's that the fruit's getting more mature than than what we're able to um, sell and you know, provide a good product to consumers with. Could you break that down, what that's going to mean for the fruit? I think my tally was about 887,000 pineapples went flowered naturally. So we've got a window of about five weeks where we need to get across our 400 acre farm and cover all those blocks that have been affected by the natural flowering so 887,000 pineapples in a five-week period is uh, it's an unachievable task um, with the ability to find staff these days has mean that we've been stuck to uh, only running one harvest crew I've got enough guys on the books to run two harvest crews, but we can't get them here for whatever reason. Enough on one day to to fill two crews to allow us to get across the ground further. Now, since uh, Christmas, there's been an influx of backpackers, and that's helping. We're able to get, you know, we're able to maintain one crew to keep it going. Getting guys on the ground to help us um, get the fruit picked is is probably challenge number one. Outside the sheer volume of of fruit, and that volume has a flow-on effect in a supply and demand market where. You know, our agents at the central markets, our guys at chain stores and things, they're doing a really good job to um, create awareness with consumers. They're, they're selling pineapples well, they're marketing them well, you know, and the fruit is fantastic quality at the moment. So I think the, you know, the buy two pineapple campaign is going really well because people are getting great quality fruit, coming back, getting another couple of pineapples. So there's a few things that are going well. Unfortunately, here in Yapoon, we, we reached our, our optimal fruit maturity peak last week now you know we we probably had about a five percent reject rate last week on on what was unsuitable for market this week that's bumped up to about 30 percent of what we're harvesting this week and it it uh it's like a snowball rolling rolling downhill it'll it'll get much worse you know we've got a northerly wind pattern and warmed week this week followed by rainfall over the weekend that'll get fruit to continue maturing so i would say our natural crop will be done and dusted whether we harvest them or not, by mid to late next week. That'll probably look at something like oh, 200,000 pineapples unpicked or, or picked and rejected. So that's, uh, that's pretty hard, uh, hard to deal with um, out here because, you know, obviously the growing costs, uh, costs of our inputs, diesel, fertiliser, um, staff, uh, all all um, increased astronomically in the last 12 to 18 months. Uh, it just It's just another bite into what we do here. 
Is that, a, would you say, about a quarter of your crop? Yeah, it'd be round figures, about a quarter of our natural crop will go unharvested. God, that's, um, that's, that must be quite rough to, to <laughs> see that. Yes, it, it is. I'm, everywhere I'm looking, in every direction I look, I can see coloured pineapples that won't be, uh, won't be eaten. That's challenging. Now, the, the good news is there's still millions of plants out here that didn't flower naturally, which all, you know, will have able to be harvested over the next 12 to 18 months. Um, it's just probably our next three-month period where the uh, where the, the Australia's pineapple market will just be probably a little bit short of where it wants to be. So this is happening right across the state, this like incredible natural flowering phenomenon. Is there a, a glut at the moment in the markets? How are prices looking? We're seeing um, prices come back on the smaller fruit. I think one thing that industry awareness of what this event was going to be like was was uh, sort of jumped on pretty early. We got the word out there. The guys in the markets have been gearing up. They've been doing a great job raising awareness with consumers, giving us feedback with quality, making sure that we're doing our job on this end so that they can do their job down there and getting us the best price um, and consumers the best pineapples. So a lot of things have been done very well to, to make that this is what could be a glut be a pretty smooth-flowing affair where fruit is is coming in fresh going out fresh when you wind up with a glut you, you you've got plenty of fruit coming into the back of a cauldron that's already full that that creates problems but the the guys are being able to to move that fruit sell that fruit on so that uh, there's continual fresh product coming out of those cold rooms and, and into people's shopping trolleys. Central Queensland pineapple grower Ben Clifton talking there to Megan Hughes about the big number of pineapples available at the moment. You can read more about that on the ABC Rural website or on our Facebook page. Lucy Braden, back on your radio in 2023. I've got a bustling drive show for you today. To keep you updated when you're on the move. Taking a look at your traffic, though, it's looking pretty A-OK right across the network. Informing you with stories from the natural world. What is going on with this cannibalism amongst spiders? To pop culture. And to see a prince do such a tell-all interview. Lucy Braden, back with The Drive Vibe, weekdays from 4pm on ABC Radio Hobart. It's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Uh, winner from Winnerlea says, there's funny and there's punny, you're both. Don't change. Love it. Thank you, Winner from Winnerlea. I like that too. That's good. Now, you may have heard about some farmers getting annoyed with tourists who come onto their property to take photos of things like canola fields, livestock or uh, sunflowers. But a farmer on Western Australia's southwest is actually using social media to attract people to her sunflower farm. Casey McGregor charges people for the experience of coming onto the farm near Bunbury. She says it's added another handy income stream to the farm. The Paddock Crooker Brook was all about bringing people, I guess, to the Paddock of Sunflowers and to be able to enjoy the event space. So we did change the way, the, I guess, the appearance of the paddock looked um, rather than it being a, a full crop. Um, it was more of a display crop this year. From what sunflower farms usually are and how they make their money, how was what you did this year different to that and was it more successful? 
Yeah, so obviously um, the sunflower, there's like many ways to utilise the plant itself. The variety that we grow is a, as a black oil seed, so it does have a very high oil content from that seed. So we've played around with just utilising the whole plant this year. So from harvesting the seed, we've gone into some um, cold pressing for the oil. We've played around with a few different concepts of eco-confetti and other seed products as well from that, So, as well as obviously the fresh cut blooms. So nothing goes to waste. We're all about being as sustainable as we can and yeah, making the most of that whole plant. What made more money, farming the sunflowers or using the space as an event space? I think it's a bit of both. I think they, they both have their financial benefits, I guess, in terms of a large crop for like is obviously viable. You're getting a high, high seed and oil production from the variety of sunflowers that we grow. But as well, the event space is really great because people get that farm experience and you have the general public coming to enjoy the sunflowers. They're two very different concepts. And yeah, I think, I think they hold their own. I think because they obviously have a strength of their own. And it was more for us about finding a niche market and bringing something to people that I had seen on social media and Instagram and things myself of people really enjoying that farm experience and that like unique experience to come on and be a part of it. So yeah, that was really our drive to sort of change direction and make the most of some small acreage. How much of a difference did it make to your business to, I guess, value add like this? Yeah, that's it. It was all about value adding, I guess. Yeah. So from, you know, we knew that we could grow sunflowers. We knew our oil, the production of those sunflowers and the way that we could utilise the seed and the oil. But yeah, it was definitely about value adding, um, which is why we thought we would open up to that general public and see if the demand was there. And you were completely booked out this year. Would you mind explaining a bit about how you managed to book out so quickly? Yeah, it was it was pretty hectic. <laughs> we opened up, we obviously had a really strong following and we utilised social media a lot for that. So had a really strong following from last season. A lot of people had, we were open for six weeks last year and a lot of people had followed us through the winter and outside of that season as well. So once we then opened up that we were releasing tickets, they were a sold out event quicker than we had originally expected, which was amazing. Had a really, really good response. We were then able to release some more tickets. So yeah, it was just yeah a massive response. And the season this year, we were only open for those three days. Um, so it was a really small window for people to come and see them at their uh, their peak bloom, basically. Why do you think people want to spend money on the opportunity to go to a sunflower farm and essentially take photos? I guess this day and age, social media is a big influence in that. So, yeah, whether it be TikTok or Instagram or whatever the platform is that they're using, I think people like to share their life and their journey and things through social media and, and sharing that with family and friends and those who are following them. So. Um, yeah, I think as well, sunflowers themselves hold a lot of sentimental value for people. So I think there's a lot more to it than just taking a photo and paying for entry. There's a lot of like an emotional connection to the flower itself. That's exactly true. Casey McGregor, who farms sunflowers with her husband, about 30 k's southeast of Bunbury in Western Australia's southwest. That story from Sophie Johnson. And they're charging people to go and see uh, the sunflowers and take photos. Just don't steal the sunflowers. It's deplorable. Um, also online, we will have our disabled writing story. That's up on our Tasmanian Country Hour uh, page at the moment. So have a look at that too. It's a great story. Uh, that's our program for today. And Richard Bailey will be along tomorrow with all the latest livestock markets, plus plenty more. We'll catch you then after midday.